Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as usual, by my partner in banter, Chief TV critic Dan Feinberg. Hi, Dan. Hi, Leslie. Why is today different from all other days? Because the Red Sox are still terrible? Oh, wait, no, that's not every other day. Oh, I just wanted to mention that I was in Chicago for Passover, gosh, and where the phrase the Windy City refers not to the wind and the weather, but to all the hot air I'm going to spew on this podcast. Oh, good grief. Well, before we get into all of uh, this week's top five segments, here's a quick look at the week's big TV headlines. Ryan Murphy is making a Netflix movie out of Broadway production The Boys in the Band, with a star-studded cast all returning. Pablo Schreiber is going to play Master Chief for Showtime's ambitious live-action take on Halo. DC Universe has trimmed it three episodes off of its highly anticipated take on Swamp Thing, as its future remains murky amid Warner Media's larger streaming plans. Mike Myers will play multiple characters in a Netflix comedy. John Cusack is going to star in Gillian Flynn's thriller Utopia for Amazon. A modern take on beloved musical Oklahoma is really for reals in the works. NBC has renewed Manifest for season two. Lena Waithe's longtime passion project 20s was picked up to series at BET after TBS passed on it. HBO says a whopping 17.4 million people, a series high, watched the Game of Thrones final season premiere across multiple platforms. And meanwhile, Netflix says 45 million households watched Umbrella Academy in its first month, whatever the hell that means. Hey, it means it's the most successful show on Netflix since all of those shows that only 40 million people watched. So, uh, you know, this changes everything, Leslie. Also, with all of those huge news stories, how did we find five things bigger to talk about in this week's TV's Top 5? Well, you'll find out in just a second. Well, with so much going on across the TV landscape, Dan and I are here on the podcast to go beyond those top headlines of the week and offer a deep dive into some of the bigger stories of the week. Well, with all that out of the way, let's get into our five topics. Number one. Leading off this week, the Writers Guild and Association of Talent Agents are at war. Last week's deadline came and passed, and both sides failed to come to an agreement in the fight over packaging fees. Since failing to come to terms on April 12th, the WGA says thousands of writers have fired their agents. This week, the Writers Guild filed suit against the four major talent agencies, WME, CAA, ICM, and UTA, in the ongoing conflict that THR labor reporter Jonathan Handel said was becoming a, quote, outright war in which neither side is likely to compromise. At issue is the practice of packaging fees, a compensation in which agencies pair a writer, star, and director and bypass their standard 10% commissions for a larger cut of a show's lucrative compensation. To get into what's going on amid the battle over packaging fees, we're thrilled to welcome the Hollywood Reporter editorial director, Matt Bellany, a former entertainment attorney, to dive deep into the lawsuit and the latest in the fight that is already upending TV's staffing season and beyond. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me. Let's get started. You know, this week, obviously, they, both sides couldn't come to, to terms. But this week, the big headline is there's now a lawsuit amid all of this. What's going on? What's the latest? Right. I mean, this is a war going nuclear, so to speak. And the lawsuit itself is interesting. The claims essentially boil down to two arguments that the writers are making that Agents are what's called fiduciaries of their clients, meaning they have a fiduciary responsibility to act on behalf of their client in every instance and to not self-deal. And that when you take a packaging fee, you are essentially putting yourself in a potentially 
adversarial position to your own client. And that's a violation of your fiduciary duty to your client. And the way that would break down here is, let's say for instance, that if you are foregoing a commission to get a packaging fee on a show, you get 2.5% or whatever on a show, you have an incentive to protect that package. And in all dealings on the show, you may try to reduce costs another way, including salary to your own client in order to protect that package. Or you may try to stop other elements from coming in that may make the show better for your client, but might impact the package. And that is a violation of a fiduciary duty according to the guild. The second thing is they claim that the act of packaging fees is violating California's unfair practices law, which is a general statute that protects people from unscrupulous and self-dealing things that corporations might do. So this is kind of a two-pronged attack. We haven't seen what the response is other than a statement from the ATA, but they now have about a month to respond in court and give their argument as to why this is not a valid case. I don't think that this is the kind of thing that is going to settle right away. I mean, we could be looking at a year, two year, three year legal battle, prolonged legal battle here, and that's going to start to impact the industry. So what have we seen so far? I mean, you know, looking at social media, there's a lot of grassroots campaigns to highlight lower level writers, but like, what's the immediate impact here? Well, it's sort of unclear because if you talk to people at the Writers Guild, they say that they have a system in place right now where writers are going to be able to use this submission system and online. utilize yeah, the online submission system, utilize other representatives to essentially step in and paper these deals that they're going to be getting through this system. I don't know if that'll work. There's some question as to whether lawyers and managers can legally step in and act as negotiators for their clients because there's another law called the Talent Agencies Act in California, which provides that only an agent can procure a job for a client. That's interesting in this case because the Writers Guild is essentially saying that managers and lawyers should be doing that and they're willing to waive any concerns they might have because the Talent Agencies Act is often used by people to sue their manager or sue their lawyer for acting as an unlicensed agent. That gets a little confusing, but it's being used in a different way now to, to essentially make lawyers and managers nervous about stepping in for these fired agents. We'll see what happens there. Now, Matt, uh, did I see correctly that the writers are trying to get back compensation in addition for this practice? And how would that even work? They are. And that's one of the more interesting claims here, that they're seeking compensation for decades of this practice of what they call illegal packaging fees. So, you know, if you look back, I mean, CAA is still getting paid on I Love Lucy and, you know, the the. Aaron Spelling shows from the 70s and 80s. I mean, these this is a billion-dollar claim, potentially, if these agencies are forced to disgorge anything they've made from packaging fees. I think, ultimately, this could be, you know, we'll see what a court says about this, but I think that putting that in there is designed to ratchet up the potential damages and hopefully force some kind of a, a settlement. But we all know, like, how Hollywood accounting works. They, they, they can't seriously think that that's something that's going to stick. And even if it did, it would take 
who knows how long to, as you say, disgorge this information. Well, right. you know, I mean, who knows? Yes, we we all know how Hollywood accounting works, and people have been highly suspicious about Hollywood accounting since the beginning of Hollywood. I mean, I used to do these kinds of claims as a lawyer, where you'd represent a client against a studio, and you have to audit, you have to go in and see, you know, how the calculations of of revenue and profits are made. You know, some of these profit definitions for talent, they run 20, 30 pages long. There are, you know, the, the joke was always that there was one person at the studio who actually understood how all of this stuff worked. And it usually wasn't the chairman of the studio. You know, it's usually some guy or woman in a basement in business affairs who actually knows how everything's calculated. And, you know, that's overstating it, obviously. But, you know, these are very, very complicated definitions of how to pay talent and you're right it would be a very onerous process to go back and look at all of these calculations over the years but you know that's what the writers are saying that they want to do yeah and all this is of course happening at the time when the broadcast networks are starting to staff up all their pilots and the immediate impact to me at least is these brand new shows that are trying to get picked up for the May upfronts, how do you staff a room in the interim? You know, there's, yes, there's, there's this website, but beyond that, you have the broadcast development season coming up right around in June. Development on television now is year round with Netflix and everybody else. I mean, in the long term, could this slow the, the peak TV growth? I think that's the fear. I don't know exactly what the impact is going to be on staffing season and the, the broadcast shows, but I think that's the immediate fear is that this is going to be in disarray or you're going to have managers and agents, you know, just kind of blindly violating the Talent Agencies Act to get their clients jobs. And I know just in talking to managers, that's a real fear. Lawyers are getting called from managers and the managers are saying, how do I navigate this? How do I help my client without violating the law? And that's a that's a real concern because they don't want, you know, two years later, a client to come around and say like, eh, you know what? You helped me then and you actually violated the law. So I'm going to fire you, sue you and get back all the commissions that I paid you, which is a real fear under the Talent Agencies Act. Those cases happen all the time. Yeah. And, and in a larger sense, too, I mean, with this legal battle, you said it could go on for years. Who is better positioned to fight this in the long term, the WGA or, or the agencies? Well, the agencies certainly have more money. And that is one of the questions that the WGA president took when they filed suit. You know, how how prepared are you guys to take this all the way? And he said, we are. We are prepared to take this to fruition. You know, it is a guild with members that do make a lot of money at some, you know, at the high end of the guild. Yeah, David Simon was is Sure. Uh, I mean, some of the named game. plaintiffs, you know, in the case are very well-known writers with shows like The Wire and Homeland and all these other shows that 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 do generate a lot of income. The vast majority of the writers guild is not those people, is not the people who are very wealthy, but I think if they needed to mount a a, a case here, they would have the funds to do it. And certainly the agents would. One of the things that we always like to do is make sure that the sort of the listeners understand how this will actually impact them. So for listeners who don't follow 50 WGA writers on Twitter already, when will they start noticing any difference from this and what will people be able to notice? Hmm. Well, that's an interesting question because I don't know if you know if your favorite show is having problems staffing its writer's room. I, I guess you might notice if the quality of the show goes down because they have, you know, five writers instead of 10. But I I don't know. I think it's a big question mark as to what the 
actual big picture impact of this is going to be because if it does lead to a slowdown in production which is a possibility you could see some of these outlets that are so desperate for content having trouble getting that content in the market i don't know if that's going to happen but that could be a, a side effect here um, but i think this is this is mostly an industry specific issue uh, you know obviously if the agencies really start hurting and start firing their literary agents you know you could have a situation where you know the next voices are not discovered because there are no agents to discover them but CAA said today, actually, that they're not going to be firing their agents. Um, I've heard similar from WME as well. And, you know, I think this is more this is more a big picture look at the future of Hollywood and how the revenue generated by these shows are, are being divvied up. And that's a that's a big picture issue that it goes beyond any individual show. Yeah. And on the flip side of that, I also wonder if it could give rise to a number of new writers and a number of new voices because you're starting to see this big grassroots campaign on Twitter and a lot of these writers like I follow Grey's Anatomy showrunner Krista Vernoff who is very vocal about a number of subjects including the WGA ATA and she and other writers are starting to spotlight hey this is a writer she's I just read this script I've never heard of her before I, I've never worked with her before but her script is great someone hire her and you're starting to see that from multiple voices and established voices mm -hmm. almost you know working in support of the little guy. Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, in the past, the way that would work is a writer like that who is spotlighted by someone in a position of power would typically get an agent immediately and start shopping that person. And now that's not going to happen, at least for the foreseeable future. So maybe that person gets hired directly or maybe a manager handles it or maybe a lawyer. But I do see a lot of effort to discover new writers and to kind of go around the system here. But the system is fighting back and we'll see who who ultimately ends up winning. Well, that feels like a good note to, to wrap things up. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. No problem. Thanks, Matt. For our next topic this week, let's talk about the surprising behind the scenes change on Why the Last Man, the big, highly anticipated adaptation over at FX. Number two. This week, showrunners Michael Green and Ada Kroll announced in a lengthy and shocking statement that they were leaving the highly anticipated adaptation take on Brian K. Vaughn's beloved comic series about the literal last man in a world filled with women. The now former showrunners said that, quote, FX has decided not to move forward with our series in its current form, and they hope to deliver a show that, quote, had something to say in a time when things must be said. Despite the remarks that implied otherwise, Why the Last Man, starring Diane Lane and Barry Keegan and Amber Tamblin, is still happening. FX is currently searching for a new showrunner after parting ways with Green and Kroll over creative differences. Dan, this was a shock that I don't think anyone would have expected, given Green's impressive credits and reputation, as well as how incredibly rare it is for FX to part ways with a showrunner. The, the thing that I actually found most interesting is, you know, show... As the listeners know clearly, shows change showrunners all the time. But it was interesting the way in which this happened and how public uh, the two former showrunners were in making this announcement. I mean, I hear, for example, that uh, Designated Survivor has had several different showrunners. And the only reason why we know about it is because you occasionally tell us about it. More showrunners than season. I think it's five showrunners heading into season three. More showrunners <laughs> actually... than networks. AB, two, <laughs> two seasons on ABC, one coming up on Netflix. Sorry, it's really my favorite stat. Is, 
Usually you don't get this situation where a showrunner, unless sometimes it's, uh, I don't know, like Brian Fuller when he leaves a show, sometimes he tweets about it or whatever. But usually it's the kind of thing that you report and that they don't announce themselves. And they came out and did this. But we've talked about this, that this has not been the fastest and smoothest transition of this title to the screen. So to some degree, this really just kind of feels like the latest step in what has been a, I think, probably more complicated than it needs to be. But what do I know? Process. I mean, the backstory on Why the Last Man is almost as great as the story of Why the Last Man. Let's go back and look. So, for example, Why the Last Man landed at FX for development back in October 2015 after a multiple network bidding war. A search began immediately to find a writer. Green was hired in November 2016 when he was still showrunning American Gods with Brian Fuller. And of course, we know what happened to both Fuller and Green on that show. A year and a half later, in April 2018, Y was picked up to pilot with Kroll boarding as a co-writer and co-showrunner alongside Green. Still with me? Three months later, Lane and Keegan were tapped to star. The official series order arrived in February of this year. I mean, and that's not even counting what happened before then. Before FX was involved, FX landed the title in 2015 after Brian K. Vaughn reacquired the rights to his beloved comic following a lengthy waiting period after New Line in 2014 scrapped plans to convert the comic book to a feature film. And but wait, there's more. (laughs) New Line, a corporate sibling to publisher Vertigo, acquired film rights to the series in 2007 with David Goyer and Carl Ellsworth and DJ Caruso to adapt. Goyer wound up walking away from the project after the studio didn't want to produce the saga as a three-film franchise, but instead wanted to do a two-hour standalone feature. I mean, 2007. This comic has been trying to be brought to life on on the big screen and now on TV for more than a decade, Dan. And the the -the behind-the-scenes turmoil of this show is, I mean, it's an oral history waiting to happen. It's remarkable, and it's also notable that anyone who's read the comic knows this is not like Watchmen in the sense that, you know, it would cost a zillion dollars to realize the comic properly. This is, uh, to me, I, I remain somewhat shocked that it's being as complicated as it is. It's a very, very intimate, small cast story. You know, the most complicated part of it is the monkey. And I, you know, Amber which break which is what I'm there for. Uh, yes, I called the monkey asterisk, I think, the first time we talked about it. I apologize for that profusely. It is ambersand. I get my punctuation marks confused. Uh, but, you know, it's not like they're trying to do this gigantic futuristic world with gigantic, uh, you know, CGI creatures and all of that. Yeah. It, it's not. <laughs> this is not a special effects show. This is a story about humanity, among other topics. But, I mean, I think, you know, in, in the larger sense, what really surprised me was... FX is not a network that replaces showrunners. It just, I think this may actually be the first in decades at FX. I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of another show that changed showrunners. You, you can, however, give the listeners several examples of FX shows that have been heavily redeveloped early in the process. And yeah. that is not without precedent. Yes, exactly. But this is, FX is basically the HBO of basic cable. This is a network that is not afraid to take its time and redevelop and spend money to get the scripts right to get the pilot right. Other shows that FX spent time redeveloping and reshooting and sometimes replacing a director, Sons of Anarchy, its spinoff Mayans, both underwent a lot of reshoots. The latter did a couple of recastings. I think there were a couple other shows that they did this with too. But FX takes its time for a reason because 
they have such a track record. First of all, they don't develop. They're, they don't develop like a broadcast network does. They're not going to say, we're going to buy 100 scripts and we're going to produce 20 of them as pilots. And of those, 10 or 15 will go to series. No, they basically do. We're going to develop this one property. We like it. This is right for us. It's very slow and methodical. And they'll take their time judging. You know, when you look at, at, at how long, I mean, it was four years with Why the Last Man between when they acquired the rights and when they picked it up to series. That's a slow development process. And it takes its time because this is a network that doesn't, that rarely cancels shows after one season. <laughs> oh, the comedians, where are you now? That was a TV show with Billy Crystal. It existed, I promise. Okay, so I remember that when Michael Green was brought in, he talked, he did a bunch of interviews and he talked about kind of his take and how it was a, a kind of examination of toxic masculinity and all of that. And, you know, that frankly is what the comic is as well. Are you hearing anything at all about kind of where the creative differences are? You know, it's it's like a vault. I've been making calls since this broke and no one really knows. Nobody wants to talk about it. The one thing that I do know is that the creative differences had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that FX is now owned by Disney. So on a knee jerk reaction, you're thinking, wow, Disney, maybe, you know, maybe they don't want to make something edgy. Maybe they don't want to make something about toxic masculinity. But that's not the case. As part of the Disney Fox deal, FX, of course, is now under the mouse house. But the caveat is that FX and John Landgraf and his team are largely going to be left alone, a.k.a. what you're doing is great. We trust you. Keep doing what you're doing. We are going to be hands off. We've got Disney Plus over here that we're focused on. We're reworking ABC with Carrie Burke. We have other things that we're focused on and we don't need to meddle in what you're doing. So, OK, as a fan of the property, given this circuitous journey and the latest step of it, are you worried or do you have sufficient faith that eventually this will all work out OK and it'll just be a footnote in the endless oral history after it goes seven seasons and finally ends on its own terms? I mean, Michael Green was the right person to adapt this and the casting came in great. And without Green, it largely depends on who they replace, who they find as a new showrunner. But in a larger sense, I mean, look at FX's track record. How many shows of theirs do you love, Dan? How many shows that FX does wind up on your top 10 or top 20 best of lists every year? That's a development team that knows what they're doing, that knows how to turn out hits and critical darlings. I I do, in fact, like several FX shows. So I, I guess I have to say that I am hopeful that this is just a, a minor blip in a series of minor blips and that it will turn out that it's going to be okay. On the other hand, I, I want to see a Why the Last Man TV series. And every time the ball gets kicked up the field, it's like, okay, well, it's going to be like 2021 now before we see it or 2022 that, you know, that I, I want the TV series to come on. And Give it's it to not me. Going. I need, I need this show in my life. I love the comics. I think FX is the perfect network for it. And I mean, I'm, I'm holding my breath and crossing my fingers and toes that they can find someone who can take the ball and hand it off from Michael Green and company and carry it over the over the, the goal line. This is what happens. I struggle when I talk about football. Can we just, you know, to around third and take it home? Can we change analogies here? <laughs> well, I think this feels like a good point to move on to our next topic. So looking at our third topic this week, the axe has begun to fall over at Fox. Number three. This week, new Fox Entertainment president Charlie Collier made his first cancellation since arriving at the newly independent broadcast network from AMC. The victims, second-year Marvel drama The Gifted and rookie multi-camera comedy Rel, 
Both of those shows were owned by 20th Century Fox, which was among the assets sold to Disney as part of the Say It With Me, Dan, $71.3 billion no, no, dollar yeah, deal. No, I was going to just say that designated survivors had three showrunners, but, you know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Water is Wet news, Fox also renewed Last Man Standing for a second season on the network and eighth overall. What's interesting to me about the renewal for Last Man Standing, which, first of all, like I said, this is water is wet news. Like, no show is more representative of what Fox, as a new independent network, wants to do than Last Man Standing. This is a broad-skewing, multi-camera comedy that appeals to middle America. At the same time, the ownership of it all is so just indicative of what the networks and ownership. It's like the poster child for, for vertical integration. So... It ran its first six seasons on ABC. This is a show that is owned by 20th Century Fox Television. And ABC canceled it because it got expensive. Tim Allen was due for a new salary hike. He's among the higher paid actors on television. ABC had to pay a licensing fee for it. And for a Friday comedy, it stopped being worth it for ABC to do it. So they canceled it. A year went by. Fox, who owned the show, was like, yeah, we're going to air it on our network. We're going big. We're going this new direction. We're going to sell half of our studio and half of our assets. And now Fox has renewed it, but now it's owned by Disney. So it's literally right back to where it started with an ownership problem. So now this is a show that's changed networks and changed ownership. It's incredible. And I think probably a lot of listeners, because probably most of our listeners are not huge uh, Last Man Standing fans, I, I don't know if they necessarily appreciate just how well this show has done for Fox on Friday nights. It's done spectacularly well by Fox standards. There was a lot of, oh, well, stupid Fox canceled Brooklyn Nine-Nine and picked up Last Man Standing. They're going to be the Fox News Network. I mean, by the standards of what Fox wanted this show to do, this show has done spectacularly well for Fox. So even if I couldn't care less about it, and I'm not even going to say I hate it because it's not like I've watched this show for a second in the past three years, in terms of a pure business strategy, the show has done what Fox has wanted it to do. And it's also helped the cool kids as well, which is such a creatively negligible show and yet does pretty decently for Fox, all things considered. Yeah. And the cool kids still remains on the bubble. But what's going to be interesting next season is you've got wrestling coming in on Fridays, which will uproot Last Man Standing from its current time slot. So Fox's schedule next fall is, is it going to be a crapshoot? Look, this is a network that's so focused on being big and broad, it's making a major push for sports and live programming. So when you think about it, it's going to have Thursday night football, postseason baseball, and wrestling. So that doesn't leave a lot of room for scripted material. Which I think is pretty clearly what they want. And, you know, I think probably if they had their way, Paradise Hotel would be a huge success uh, this summer slash spring. And then they could get a second season of Paradise Hotel going immediately. And, uh, you know, Paradise Hotel, that to me is going to be the poster boy for what uh, New Fox wants to be. It oh, is I thought be it was going to be the <laughs> I thought it was going to be the Beverly Hills 90210 docuseries sort of revival that they're doing. Oh, God. Has anyone even mentioned that recently? It's just kind of happening on the sly. But the last time we talked about it was sadly after Luke Perry's death. And so, yeah, I'm going to be very curious if that is if that ends up being what we thought it was going to be when they announced it. Yeah. I, it and that's it due in the summer. Totally different. And that's yeah. due in the summer. So who knows what's going to happen there? I mean, in, in a larger sense, you know, when I look at this, it's like we talk a lot about what new Fox is going to be. And you, when you look at the early renewals that they've handed out, all of three animated shows. So Family Guy, Bob's Burgers and The Simpsons are coming back. How much longer those Disney owned shows stay on that network is a big question. Fox has two new animated shows that is it greenlit for next fall. And then on the drama side, it's already renewed The Resident and 911. I mean, that's 
you want a snapshot of what the new Fox is? There it is. It's animation, procedurals, multicams with Tim Allen and sports. That does not speak too well for the passage, does it? <laughs> no, especially because the passage is, again, not owned in-house, which none of the shows that they own are in-house right now because it doesn't have a studio because it's a new independent network. So that's the other story that we're starting to monitor from an in-the-weeds development perspective what is a broadcast network without a studio? So it's got this thing called Sidecar, which we've talked about in the past and don't fully completely understand. It's an incubator. I know it's an incubator. I don't know what an incubator is, but that's what it is. An incubator is going to be our trigger word to take a shot, Dan. It's an incubator. So drink. I'm there for it. Do you have anything else to say here? I mean, it is a thing in progress. What New Fox is going to be. And I, and I don't think we're even going to know what it is next month at Upfronts. I I think it is a a thing that is going to be gradual. And I guess we're going to talk about it again in the future. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Especially because they've got a number of shows that are still awaiting their fates, including Empire, Lethal Weapon, The Orville, The Passage, Cool Kids, and Proven Innocent. Well, I mean, Empire, you know, it it still does fairly well. And it's a show that isn't really very controversial. So it should be just a no-brainer renewal, right? Back up. Back up. Don't forget, anyway. Jesse Smollett now works for Disney, so I don't know how how keen Disney is going to be to want to keep someone with the controversy that's surrounding that actor right now. Well, we will continue to monitor this, so it's time to move on to our next topic. Number four. We're going into our mailbag, and need I remind you that if you have any questions, comments, or concerns for us... That would be TV's top five at THR.com. That's the email to reach us at. That's TVS, T-O-P, the number five at THR.com. This week's question, which is sort of a the latest step in our what the bleep is up with dot 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 regular recurring segment that Leslie just wants to call. Let's take a look at some network or something. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, listener Jacou asks about how linear networks like Freeform, Disney Channel, MTV, and Nickelodeon are competing with Netflix. Uh, one of the more under-the-radar stories this, that's been happening but not getting a lot of attention is the battle over children's programming talent between Disney and Netflix. Tell us more, Leslie. Well, last week, one of the stories that, that we sent out uh, via our breaking news alert, if you subscribe, shameless plug, is that Netflix signed Kenny Ortega to a big overall deal. Ortega, of course, is the director on two massive Disney Channel franchises, that being High School Musical and, more recently, The Descendants. There have been three TV movies in each franchise, with both also becoming incredibly lucrative for Disney's consumer products division. Ortega was the latest talent to be plucked away from Disney Channel. Peabody-winning kids programming creator Chris Nee, who also created mega-hit franchises like Doc McStuffins and Vampirina, which my nieces absolutely love, as well as Alex Hirsch, who was the creator behind Gravity Falls, also both landed at Netflix with overall deals. It's also worth noting that Hirsch originally departed Disney for an overall deal at Fox before he wound up at Netflix with what I'm told is one of the bigger overall deals. Neither creator had overall deals in place at Disney Channel. So, I mean, in a larger sense, Ortega is yet another major loss for Disney Channel, which in the past couple of months has also been playing defense a little bit as it finally starts to sign its top creators to overall deals and try and combat the billion-dollar spender that Netflix is and its efforts to be a hub for children's programming, too. So Disney Channel in the last couple of months has signed Sophia the First and Elena Avalor, creator and Crash and Bernstein creator 
reader. Both of those guys wound up with overall deals at Disney Channel. But look, this is, again, the same thing that's happening on Scripted when you see someone like Shonda Rhimes and Kenya Barris move from ABC to Netflix with overall deals. That same thing is happening in the kids programming space because Netflix, as you would imagine, is trying to be everything for everyone. So it wants stand-up comedies. It wants kids programming. It wants broad multi-camera comedies. It wants awards darlings. It, it wants Broadway shows. You know, we talked at the top of the show about doing Boys in the Band. That's their third Broadway show that they're filming. So, I mean, this is just the latest battle here, Dan. It is. And, you know, I obviously do not spend excessive amounts of my time watching children's programming, but I probably do spend a fair amount of time watching young adult programming. And I think that Netflix has has just done a very, very impressive job of filling out that space with stuff of, of genuine quality. Like I would say, for example, that Sex Education is a young adult show to some degree. It's a it's a terrific show. You look at something like The Late Lamented Everything Sucks. You look at uh, On My Block, which just returned, or On the Block, that just returned for its second season, and it's just a really solid show. A lot of the shows that don't even appear to be kind of YA shows are kind of YA shows in disguise. So next week they have Chambers, which comes out, which has a heavy YA hook to it. They've got The Society coming out in a couple weeks. And then even sort of skewing younger for no reason in particular, for example, I watched a full season of Alexa and Katie, which is a multi-cam comedy about two teenage girls very much in the in the Disney Channel whatever vein. And yet it's on Netflix and it feels completely on brand because Netflix's brand is absolutely everything. So it you know, as you say, Netflix wants to be for everybody. But one of the things, one of the age groups they've gone after most aggressively in the past year or two, and that I've appreciated the effort on, has been the YA space. Oh, definitely. And especially when you look at shows that they have coming up, like The Society, and they picked up straight, went straight to series on Babysitter's Club, which would be a perfect show for something like Freeform or even Disney Channel, depending on how young it skews. But look, I mean, like I said, it wants to be everything. Netflix is Disney XT and Disney Channel and Freeform and FX and Nat Geo and HBO and a movie studio. I mean, this is it's literally just the latest in their brand of disrupting the entire industry. So, well, one of the things that I find interesting when I talk to people who aren't necessarily doing exactly what we do is that when I ask yeah, they have kids, I ask them, OK, so what do your kids watch? And the answer, like nine times out of 10 is my kids only watch YouTube. So what is YouTube doing in this space? Well, YouTube right now is not much of a player for originals. Right now, they are tweaking their current scripted strategy as they're backing away from the premium subscription plan that includes access to scripted originals like Cobra Kai. They just canceled four shows, including Ryan Hansen Solves Crimes. I mean, this is a, a an outlet that is kind of doing the opposite of what Netflix and Disney Channel are doing in that they've got... A lot of their scripted stuff they're backing away from. Their development stuff has kind of screeched to a grinding halt. And they're kind of at a, at a turning point where they've got a great executive, Suzanne Daniels, who came over from MTV, who's got great creative instincts. She greenlit shows like Awkward and uh, Faking It, which is another one of my favorites. And she's just kind of sitting there waiting to see what, what they're going to do. I mean... You know, without income from a subscription platform, YouTube is not going to be able to compete for for some of these high end originals that are generating bidding wars all over the place. I the, the YouTube thing really remains confusing to me because it, it is so universally the answer for what people's 
quote unquote kids watch? The, the answer is they watch YouTube. They watch people's YouTube videos. They watch things that pop up randomly on YouTube. It seems like it's such a captive audience. And for some reason, that is not an audience that YouTube even really went after with its originals. It's a, a strange strategic choice. Yeah, it's, it, that's definitely one of the stories that that uh, our digital editor, Natalie Jarvie, who has been a wonderful guest in the past here, is continuing to monitor. So it's going to be a wait and see with what they wind up doing. So, well, moving on, as always, we wrap things up with our weekly critics corner segment. Number five. This week, Hulu launches comedy Rami. Bosch is back on Amazon, period drama Gentleman Jack debuts on HBO, and season two of Cobra Kai, one of YouTube's last remaining scripted originals, returns. Dan, what you got this week? That really is a little something for everybody, Leslie. Uh, The thing that I would recommend primarily this week is Rami. Um, I've seen eight of ten episodes. It's from comic Rami Youssef, and the gimmick is basically it's about a a 20-something guy in New Jersey who who is Muslim and he's trying to live a life of of spiritual goodness but he's also trying to have fun and to date and to live a life and it it is a show that is shockingly actually about religion so if you're one of those people out there who's been like why aren't there more shows about religion well here's one and maybe you want to acknowledge it but it's not a show that's about you know rah 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 everybody convert to to muslim it's about okay here's a person who's a person of faith who's trying to live his life and trying to look for meaning in life and it's exactly the kind of show that i feel like faith-based advocacy groups lament doesn't appear on tv and yet there's no chance on earth that any of them are going to champion this because it's not the faith that they happen to want to espouse and you know it seems to me like you don't necessarily get to choose and if a show earnestly wants to be about religion and is also in the case of this show fairly funny frequently wonderfully acted consistently and it is a show that already after only the eight episodes i've seen is getting really courageous and really adventurous with how it approaches narrative, how it approaches character. It has a a great episode that's set on 9-11-2001 that is one of the best handling of that particular topic that I've ever seen on TV. Uh, There's an episode that focuses on the main character's mother that is as sensitive and thoughtful and emotional as any episode you're going to see on TV this year. And so it is a show that to some degree is about a rambunctious 20-year-old in New Jersey praying occasionally and celebrating Ramadan, but it's also about other things. And it's it's already getting experimental, getting in-depth, getting character-driven. And and I think it's a, it has potential to be a genuinely special show. I think it is already a very good and very worth-watching show. It's one of the best new shows of the year. So yeah, uh, my, my colleague, partner in crime, uh, Tim Goodman, really, really liked Gentleman Jack. I have not had the time to watch it. And then HBO is very of- excited about Gentleman Jack. I've gotten a, a few different emails from them saying, this is a show you will love. Which is such a, I don't want to say it's a surprise, but it is an interesting detour or choice you know it has some names associated with it uh sally wainwright who's the creator is a fantastic british showrunner just utterly sublime but still in all i don't think to most audiences she's a name i think she's a name to tv critics and tv obsessives but i i've been interested in how excited they seem about that show and then as you say uh, cobra kai YouTube Red may not be in existence anymore, and YouTube Premium may not be making originals in quite the same way, but this was the first one of their shows that actually kind of broke through with the mainstream audience and was such a a true 
surprise. It was so much better than it had any need to be. I've watched so far, I've watched half of the second season, and I will eventually have a review after I finish it. And it's a minor disappointment, but only because it can't surprise you. It can't, you can't have that, my God, I can't believe how surprisingly good it is. You have to go, okay, I'm not being surprised by how good this is anymore, but I'm also still enjoying it. So I'm not saying it like fell off the cliff or anything, but it can't sneak up on you and that makes it harder. And so it suffers a tiny bit as a result of that, but I think people will still be fairly happy with it if they like the franchise. But really, Rami is the thing that I would recommend to people for this week. Well, Dan, that's a good point for us to wrap things up thank you for listening to tv's top five the hollywood reporters tv podcast and if you like us be sure to check out josh wiggler's genre podcast series regular and scott feinberg's awards chatter which next week features vanessa hudgens and seth mcfarlane as emmy season gets into full swing dan and i will be back next week and until then be sure to subscribe on your various podcast platforms and if you really like us, please consider rating us or reviewing us on your favorite podcast platforms. And as I already mentioned, if you have questions, comments, concerns, would like to participate in an upcoming mailbag, etc., etc., that would be TV's Top 5 at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan, go Dodgers. 